And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, February 13th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the 118th Congress, slow to get started, has moved into high gear. Plus, the Small Business Administration has a big agenda. We'll hear from the boss. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Defense Department is testing artificial intelligence to help write contracts faster. DOD's chief digital and AI office has a prototype of an algorithm that's supposed to generate specific contract language from prompts by a human. It's part of DOD's Tradewind initiative focused on high-impact AI concepts. For details, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with Tradewind execution lead Bonnie Evangelista. In my position, I'm focusing on high-value tasks. As an example, in contracting, like we're asking questions like, can an AI or can a bot write a contract? Like, Is that possible? I'm not interested in automating a workflow that is not helping emerging technology get into the hands of soldiers faster. I'm more interested in, can I speed up the entire process so that we can point, click, and buy? Is that even possible? Can vendors write proposals on their phones? Like, those are, like, big, bold statements, and those are the things that, like, from a practitioner's perspective in contracting, those are the things we're considering. It's not just about rudimentary tasks. And even from a government perspective, I think there are some of us who are trying to go big and go bold, but it can be hard from a workforce perspective because I think it's hard to scale because of culture. The whole focus of Trade Winds is like this culture shakeup, you know, around acquisition, around contracting. And in terms of big things yeah. to tackle, I can't think of anything bigger than culture. How do you get people to not just go for the low hanging fruit, but for swinging for the fences and going for that higher order stuff? The approach we've taken under Tradewind is like when you go big, like you focus on the scoreboard because that's the only way people will believe that it's possible. And sometimes, at least from a contracting and acquisition perspective, people don't know what's possible. They're just living in their lanes and understanding what's possible based on their experience and their precedence or what people tell them are possible. So if no one's pushing the envelope, so that's what we try and do. We try and push the envelope until something breaks. And then when we think and we believe in a model, whether it's this is RPA and AI and modernization. So like we're working on a prototype. It's an AI powered contract writing capability. So we have a working prototype, whether it's that or it's like changing people's mindsets about how you can use acquisition authorities to go faster or to get a better end state for your user, things like that. We're trying it all because we want to go after the high value tasks. We're not going to settle for the low value stuff. We want to we want to see if we can break the mold and break the glass ceiling from an acquisition perspective. Bonnie, to circle back to the AI that's at some point, the idea is that it's going to be capable of writing contracts or, or take on some of the tasks for the contracting officers of the world. The, the DOD terminology is when we talk about all things AI, it's that human in the loop, right? That, you know, there's going to be some handoff to the flesh and blood person and there's going to be some handoff to the bot or the AI. As you're building this up, how do you think of that human in the loop process? And, and at one point, does the human take over? And at what point does the AI? I would offer that when we're thinking about this problem, we're not necessarily trying to dictate the answer. 
we're identifying first and foremost pain points and challenges in the process, and then it's up to the developer to help us use the technology or adopt the technology in a way that allows it to either go faster, better, cheaper, all of the above, because it's right now it's just we want speed to contract in my functional lane is extremely important, and I think it's going to be a differentiator in whatever cyber wars are going to happen in the next couple few years. And one of the things that we're focusing on is can the AI help practitioners or problem owners, use cases, mission? Because right now I'm kind of in a, in a setting where we don't really have traditionally trained acquisition people who are trying to articulate problems to us. So can we help them even articulate what the problem is? And that's where we started. And we have a, a working prototype. It's actbot.com. Anybody can sign up and, and help us. Like, if you want to join the experiment, bring your use cases to us. You know, can we develop a problem statement, go zero to problem statement in under 60 minutes with the help of this tool? Again, we didn't start with that in mind, but that's kind of where we landed after we're like, we really fully understood what like some of the major pain points in the process was. So even going back to cultural change, writing a problem statement is not very standard where the government is very used to writing requirements. So this is a mindset shift culturally. Like, so not a lot of people may understand, okay, I need to start with my current state, look at my future state, look at my operational gap. And so we actually used a very small data set and started, we're trying to start training the model to help us build a problem statement from nothing. Like, can somebody put a descriptive title in the tool and help it develop a pretty articulate problem statement? To your point about human in the loop, the technology helps us generate text very much so like ChatGPT, and this is very similar to that. However, the tool doesn't get to make the decision. That's where the human comes in. There is a human reviewing and validating the text at every point in the process, but the tool is going to help generate certain text to help inform your problem statement. And then that's just the beginning of the workflow, but we have the workflow going all the way from problem statement to helping to generate the what we call the call to industry. So this is like if you're doing non-FAR-based contracting, this is more the lane we chose to focus on because no contract rating system, at least in the Department of Defense, actually supports that. So can industry also respond in that workflow to the call to industry? And then can it generate the contract in the end? It sounds like where you guys are with the AI, that as just kind of the nature of AI, it's pretty starved for data. Like it just needs just reams and reams of training data to get trained up and, and do what it's supposed to be doing. That's part of the conceit of the CDAO, right? That it's data and the AI all under one roof. Can you maybe unpack a little bit more of the data challenges that you're experiencing or hurdles to overcome, whether it's this use case or, or more broadly? I won't speak to more broadly because I think like Dr. Martell, who is the CDAO, has very much a an opinion and a vision for data at large, like where it needs to be. I'm speaking more from an acquisition contracting lane. It didn't take a lot of data to get a working prototype in there. What you're talking about too, I don't think it's going to take a massive amount of data to nuance or train the model, but I will say that you don't expect glory overnight. No AI has an out-of-the-box solution. Like, it has to be... This is something where we're hoping if we can create... If we can prove the concept, though, I don't think it takes a ton of data just to prove the concept. And if we can continue to prove the concept and then create a demand, a demand signal 
for this type of tool, that's where we can make it optimize the technology, I think. And I fully understand, though, that the tool may not be in a place where it's completely operational within, I don't even know how many years it takes, but I do, there's a very smart person in the room who taught me that AI is like a human lifespan. So when an AI comes out of the box, it's like children, and even children have to learn and grow just as much as AI also has to learn and grow. So I'm hoping that because the technology has enabled us to basically solve like really hard pain points in my functional lane, it can, we've given it a chance to be enduring. Bonnie Evangelista, Tradewind Execution Lead for the Defense Department's Chief Digital and AI Office, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the Small Business Administration has a big agenda. We'll hear from the boss. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Between follow-up to the pandemic, DOD's need to expand the defense industrial base, and the administration's desire to foster new business, it's a busy time for the Small Business Administration. For an update, I spoke with Administrator Isabella Guzman, starting with her own background. Just by way of background, you yourself have a small business family that you came from, isn't that correct? That's right. Uh, I was uh, raised in a small business family, working with my family's veterinary hospitals, and uh, of course, I've started my own businesses as well as advised founders, and so I've been immersed in small businesses for most of my life. And in the federal sense, you know, federal contracting is a complicated matter, and there are lots of rules now in the FAR under development with respect to carbon footprint reporting. Uh, it's hard to tell uh, whether there will be relief for inflation under, say, DOD contracts. It's not clear there's money there. It looks a little cloudy. What's your best word to companies that are small that would like to get into federal contracting and looking at this really daunting pathway? Well, the overarching uh, message that I send to small businesses who want to do business with the largest buyer in the world is that uh, you know, the, the government needs to build up our industrial base. We need you to be able to provide the products and services to fulfill the missions of our agencies. And uh, we've seen a decline in the number of small business contractors over the past 10 years. And the Biden-Harris administration is really committed to reversing that and making sure that small businesses can participate in federal contracting, uh, which is uh, why you've seen a whole-of-government approach towards uh, equity and procurement uh, as a priority and making sure uh, that inures to all of our small businesses as we focus on uh, the rules and the commitments at the agency level to ensure that small businesses can participate. Because sometimes the rules like for cost accounting and something trip up even the big, huge, giant federal contractors and they get different interpretations of the rules in one court venue versus another. And I'm just wondering, is there any gambit or any – do you discuss that issue of clearing out some of the of the uh, brush 
of regulation about procurement that could make it easier. Yes, of course, SBA is, is uh, works hard to be an advocate for small businesses uh, across the federal procurement landscape. And, uh, you know, I think importantly, what we offer as well to the small businesses is, uh, is a, a network of centers who can provide support uh, as they start from the process of the very beginning of getting certified and uh, trying to develop a business development strategy. Um, but you're right, the challenges around uh, ensuring that, you know, not only your compliance, your accounting, um, your entire back office is, is, is set up is, is, is really a critical um, you know, stage for a small business to develop. Uh, you know, and that includes, uh, of course, you know, having the, uh, the legal know-how to be able to bid and read a contract. And so those things are, are challenging for small businesses, clearly, who don't uh, necessarily have that full uh, and large back office to support them. So uh, you know, SBA, of course, has its business opportunity specialists, uh, as well as procurement center representatives that are um, focused on uh, helping small businesses access contracts, but uh, you know clearly the, the the other components through our small business development centers, our veteran business outreach centers, uh, or the grantees that participate in SBA 7J uh, grants that focus on helping support, uh, you know, for example, in particular the 8A uh, small disadvantaged businesses or, or prospective um, 8As is is an important component of our outreach and support and uh, technical assistance that we provide to small businesses. Which is a bigger program, the 7A or the 7J loans? The 7A loans, of course, is our uh, you know, large signature lending pro- uh, program, and uh, that's one you know, other component of federal procurement is that small business, they definitely need capital in order to deliver uh, and be able to even go after these contracts. So the working capital loans with the 7A program uh, are really critical for small businesses, as are um, the bonding programs that we have at the SBA. And uh, you know, just this um, past year with the Department of Transportation, we rolled out an initiative to focus on ensuring that our SBICs, uh, our Small Business Investment Company licensees, uh, are able to uh, support the, uh, you know, those contractors working on building our infrastructure and, and making sure that you know, they have a, an opportunity to participate in the, the funding that they need. So we're really trying to deploy the full suite of SBA's capital access programs across the board to ensure that you know, small businesses can stay competitive uh, in this space. And, and, and clearly, as I said earlier, you know, competition and innovation come from small businesses, and we want to make sure that uh, they are strong and able to participate. We're speaking with Isabella Guzman. She is the administrator of the Small Business Administration. Just the other day, you mentioned, I think, in The Hill that uh, minority businesses in general, not just federal contracting ones, have often a lack of access to capital. How is that, and what is the mechanism for that at this day and age? It's uh, been a persistent issue, uh, underinvestment uh, in our underserved communities uh, as, a, as a big loss to our economy. Uh, you know, there's been multiple studies on, on the total economic impact because if they're able to produce the revenues or the employment numbers uh, of their peers, you know, our economy would uh, be stronger. Morgan Stanley estimates it as a $4.4 trillion loss uh, for lack of investment in women and uh, people of color in particular. So uh, you know, for, at the SBA, of course, we're trying to fill gaps in the marketplace and, and provide uh, loans for, for those who are unable to access it uh, through traditional markets. And so so uh, we've been you know, working really diligently during the Biden-Harris administration to uh, solve those gaps uh, early on. 
uh, you know, President Biden has been committed to ensuring that uh, the smallest of the small and those who were left out of early rounds of relief were able to access capital. Uh, and so during uh, you know, 2021, we really leaned into ensuring that we did the proper outreach uh, and uh, you know, changed our policies uh, within PPP and, and, and COVID Idle expanded that program to make sure that we could reach those businesses. And in fact, the GAO uh, uh, study found that the SBA was able to uh, fill more of those gaps for the underserved communities, including rural communities, to really uh, provide relief uh, to those businesses. And so uh, we've taken a lot of the same principles uh, in terms of access to capital and those successes in, in reaching more small businesses with PPP and uh, have looked to expand our, our lending base, the competition in the lending base, as well as uh, simplified our products because you needed to have a simple, uh, you know, swift product, um, you know, with uh, with the strong controls as well as uh, a broader distribution network in order to reach more of these small businesses. And of course, the American Rescue Plan uh, was really critical in, in helping our economy recover as successfully as it has been able to um, in terms of job creation and, and the uh, now, you know, uh, uh, slowing of inflation in the past six months. But we've definitely uh, you know seen that the American Rescue Plan's community navigator pilot program which expanded our our, our uh, technical assistance network uh, has also been helpful in ensuring that we could reach and help smallest of small businesses navigate federal resources. And of course, the uh, unfortunate downside of a lot of those COVID-related era programs is the billions of dollars now that GAO has kind of done a meta survey of everything going on of fraudulent loans and so forth. I think the SBA has about five or 600 investigations going right now. Do you have the manpower and both in the IG office and in your regular auditor function to ensure program integrity that you can at least find some cases and claw that money back? Uh, well, clearly the, you know, the president has prioritized ensuring that the funds get into the hands of the uh, those it was intended to serve and has uh, prioritized making sure that uh, fraud is addressed uh, within his administration. And so, uh, you know, SBA has has strengthened uh, its ability, um, you know, clearly using uh, the scale that we were able to achieve to disperse these loans. We've, we've had to continue to maintain those portfolios and, uh, in addition, uh, you know, put some of the common sense fraud prevention measures back in place, uh, like the Treasury do not play, pay database and, and have focused on combating fraud, changing the, uh, the organization's um, prioritization of these issues, as well as uh, implementing some strong controls and processes, as well as structure uh, within the agency to have a, a strong fraud risk management framework uh, aligned with GAO's recommendations. And so, um, you know, uh, the SBA's new scale is obviously something that we continue to advocate for additional support, as well as support for our Office of Inspector General, uh, and uh, that you know, has been reflected uh, in previous budgets, as well as um, our continued support for those efforts. And earlier you mentioned the fact that the number of small businesses doing business with the government has decreased, and yet over the last several years the government has managed to meet or exceed its small business contracting goals. One of the ways, I guess, maybe is the category management program that operates in DOD and in through GSA for the civilian agencies. 
But mm-hmm. now DOD is telling some of its components, all of its components, that they can get the credits toward category management, even using vehicles that are not category management vehicles. So does that mm-hmm. help the cause or hurt the cause? Or <laughs> what does that all mean, do you think? Yes. Well, when uh, you know, the whole of government approach to uh, federal procurement I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, SBA uh, corroborated and, and leaned in with the White House as well as uh, other federal agencies, key buying agencies, uh, to ensure that we were implementing policies that would help support small businesses and as well achieve the president's goal of 15% uh, for small disadvantaged businesses by 2025. Uh, you know, we are um, uh, definitely focused on, you know, of course, helping more in entrance, you know, simplifying certification. SBA just took over the uh, veteran certification uh, for small businesses to, to expand across the whole of government from the Veterans Administration. Uh, but uh, and, and we've focused on simplifying that process as well as uh, currently have regulation put forward. Um, it was through proposed rule, and now we're finalizing it uh, for the 8A program. So we are focused on you know, simplifying process on the front end, but um, the you know, the whole of government approach to uh, figuring out how we can ensure that there are more small contracts available uh, for small businesses to uh, to enter as well as um, opportunities for them to participate. And so it's, it's, a, it's a question of uh, making sure that, for example, as you mentioned, through category management, uh, you know, we, we are changing the policies to allow uh, for all socioeconomic disadvantaged firms to be able to access uh, category management vehicles and, you know, they're given automatic tier two, uh, you know, level prioritization uh, within category management as a result of changes in the Biden-Harris administration. So uh, we hope that that makes uh, a difference in, in allowing more contract opportunities for our small businesses to participate in, and that's all of our socioeconomic categories. And by the way, I wasn't aware of the 8A proposed rule change. What's your goal there? I think across the board, we want to you know make sure we address concerns uh, in 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 the community as well as streamline and simplify as much as possible, um, you know, while providing strong you know, prudent management. And so, uh, you know, across the board, we're just trying to make sure that we modernize uh, as much as possible uh, across our certification programs, uh, leveraging technology uh, to simplify the process as we have with our new rolled out uh, VET cert, which we believe is the gold standard uh, for certification, and uh, continue to do that uh, across the board so that we can ensure that we're certifying firms uh, where the programs exist and that we continue to attract more small businesses for agencies to be able to to deploy and uh, achieve their missions. And for the SBA itself, what are your human capital needs, let's say? What what kind of talent do you need? The agency grew a lot as a result of pandemic spending. We, um, and and we've uh, definitely tried to prioritize, uh, you know, Leveraging this moment, uh, where SBA reached a, an incredible scale uh, with uh, with COVID administration administrative dollars, but um, you know we've obviously had to uh, ensure that we have the uh, you know the folks on the technology front to uh, address modernization across our programs, whether that be capital or our government contracting. And um, you know, or uh, you know, grants management across our entrepreneurial development space. So we 
we have definitely um, you know, had to step up our game in terms of our ability to deploy. Uh, and, and my you know, priority has been and, and uh, aligns with the uh, president's executive order and uh, customer experience uh, is ensuring that we are customer-centric and technology-forward and equitable uh, across our programs. And so in, uh, we need to be able to better meet our businesses where they are, and, and not only that, but meet them everywhere that they are. And so we are uh, you know, constantly deploying to make sure that that customer experience at the SBA, um, you know, from the, the time they walk through their doors through the entire process, is, uh, is as uh, simple and, and uh, of a process as possible and supported, uh, as that's how we're going to be able to help support small businesses. And by the way, do you like your job? I love my job. <laughs> of course, I was raised in small businesses, and uh, you know, so it's a passion area for me. I served previously during the Obama-Biden administration as Deputy Chief of Staff and Senior Advisor uh, at the SBA. And so in many ways, I've, I've come home and I have a real uh, you know, passion, as do many of the, uh, of the employees at the SBA, a very mission focus on uh, helping small businesses do what they do best, which is you know, create jobs and innovate and you know, build our communities and our neighborhoods and give us the products and services that we all love and uh, depend on. And so I, um, you know, my, my job is incredible, and the Biden-Harris administration has really uh, laid out a strong economic plan that we're seeing results from, and um, ensuring that small businesses are part of that vision uh, is an area of focus that the SBA uh, aims to deliver. And when you left after the Obama administration returned for the Biden I'm guessing a lot of the same workforce, permanent workforce, career workforce people were there because that's one of those agencies where the mission itself kind of keeps people for a very long time. That's correct. I've been able to return to uh, uh, you know, a family workforce that uh, I'm familiar with from prior, prior experience and uh, as well as some new leaders and, and new employees. And so it's, it's an incredible team. We were able to attract some strong talent, of course, during the pandemic. Um, that have been converted uh, in some cases to permanent workforce. And so we have um, I've really, it's been remarkable, the work that they've done uh, over the last several years. And uh, I you know, consistently give them kudos for uh, still uh, running hard after, uh, you know, after all this time, you know, after the massive $1.2 trillion in relief that the agency put out, but to continue uh, to stay committed and focused towards implementing the, the changes and, and uh, uh, you know, the process improvements and across the board to make sure that we can deliver for our small businesses. Isabella Guzman is administrator of the Small Business Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the 118th Congress, slow to get started, has moved into high gear. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The new Congress might have been a bit slow getting started, but now it's making up for lost time. 
A whole tray full of bills having to do with the federal workforce and retirees has popped up in recent days. We get the slideshow now from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And golly, they fair to say there's a lot of activity all of a sudden up there. It really is. It's really picked up. Just amazing how it happens just like that. It's like a light switch goes off. So all of this legislation just pouring out related to federal employees, federal agencies, uh, very active House Republicans getting into their uh, mode where they're going to do a lot of oversight. So we're really seeing a lot of the bills starting to fly into the hopper right now. And let's talk about the new Family Medical Leave Act legislation. This is one that is comes up periodically, I think almost every session which would be giving comprehensive paid leave as the bill is headlined for federal employees. What's going on with that one? Well, and this is a little bit different this year. For one thing, uh, the supporters of FMLA point out that this is uh, the Family and Medical Leave Act is now 30 years old this year, and they really want to make some more changes to it. And, And there is an impetus in part because of what happened during the pandemic when so many people were dealing with sick kids, dealing with themselves being sick and their parents being sick. So there's a move to expand it. Uh, Virginia Congressman Don Beyer and Brian Schatz in the uh, Senate from Hawaii are both collaborating on this, trying once again to try to expand the FMLA. And related to the pandemic, what they would like to do is allow federal employees to take up to 26 weeks of medical and family leave. Of course, currently under the FMLA, employees can take up to 12 weeks for care of a baby or an ill family member, but it is not paid. This would be paid leave. Now, again, this is an uphill battle because Republicans in the House have made it clear that they don't want to spend too much more money. But because of, I think, the pandemic and some other issues related to the FMLA, there is a big push, at least among Democrats, uh, to try to get this expanded. Right. Are there any Republican supporters for it that you've seen in the House or Senate? You know, there's been talk uh, among moderate Republicans who would would probably support this. But uh, again, because uh, the strength right now, at least in the Republican caucus, is related to people who want to scale back spending. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. All right. And then there's another one which really gets into the weeds, the standardization of annual annuity payments to retired feds. This is the Equal COLA Act, and that's, I guess, coming from Jerry Connolly. Right. And uh, while it does get into the weeds, it all comes down to money. And, of course, everybody's thinking about their retirement in the federal uh, government. And uh, this would, once again, try to get a cost of living adjustment, the COLA, uh, calculated now for federal employee retirement system workers. Specifically, this would give retirees a full annual COLA to their annuity payments, uh, basically achieving parity with the retirees in the civil service service retirement system who already get that annual COLA in its entirety. Basically, Jerry Connolly is saying it's a two-tiered system that's just not fair for many federal employees because federal employment retirement system employees only get 1% below the full COLA, depending on how much the inflation goes up during a particular year. For example, uh, the latest COLA was 8.7%, and that was a real high increase, the highest one since 1982, but the retirees only got a 7.7% cola. Uh, Connolly likes to refer to this as the diet cola because he just doesn't think it's fair to a federal employees. He wants to obviously adjust this, and it's been getting a lot more attention, of course, because inflation has been so high and it has been so prominent a conversation. However, again, it's going to face a tough battle to try to get through. Jerry Connolly knows this. As a Democrat, he's reintroduced this many times, and there is still a lot of pushback from Republicans on this. Uh, but again, he's highlighting the fact that there 
there is some, you know, basic parity issues related to federal employees trying to get uh, keep up with inflation. And one other thing is he points out that, you know, even though it's one percent, you think, oh, well, that's not a lot. But as he notes that over time, if you, you know, every year the retirement adds up, he said that could actually add up to tens of thousands of dollars for people. Well, I think, you know, the dusty tomes of yesteryear will show you that the reason of the Diet Cola had to do with the fact that when they switched from SIRS to FERS, the FERS people also get Social Security. Right. In return for a smaller annuity. SERS people, in theory, don't. They get that from their second career. But that aside, I think that was part of the rationale there. And other people, I guess, maybe remember that. Yeah, that's a great point. All right. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. And the Federal Executive Board reauthorization, this used to be a very active chain of groups in the cities that had large federal populations that or away from Washington, executives locally from different agencies would get together and decide things from snow policy or whatever else. And I didn't realize they had not been authorized or funded for some time now. Right. They really hadn't. And so uh, a few senators are trying to get momentum on this again. Among them, Gary Peters of Michigan. He chairs the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, along with uh, John Cornyn, prominent Republican from Texas, and, and then Alex Padilla from California. These are states that have many of the boards that do this local work with the uh, with the federal workforce and they're trying to basically get this reauthorized because it's been kind of sitting there as you noted and not really doing much and they point out that you know for all the attention that many lawmakers like to point to the swamp and say that all the federal workers are here in DC as you well know more than 80% of federal workers actually work outside of DC and a lot of them are in these uh, areas in states as I just mentioned. And so they want to try to get this reauthorized. But also another impetus for this is there, as you well know, have been many studies showing that there are not a lot of younger people getting into the federal workforce. And this would also help to get those local tie-ins with the federal agencies to get people with internships and get them into those agencies at a younger age, since we are moving on with a lot of baby boomers moving out of the federal government. Yeah. And the different cities have different flavors in their workforce and in their cultural approaches. And so I think the federal executive boards can be a pretty vital thing. Uh, I remember after 9-11, you know, the New York federal executive board really came together because of the terrible localized conditions there, which really were much worse than Washington. That was, a, I think, a fine moment for the federal executive boards. Right. And I think it really ties in, um, you know, people a lot of the time think, oh, well, the federal government is somewhere else. But when you see the work on the ground, just as you mentioned, then it kind of makes it more real for people about what the federal government can do. All right. And uh, getting to the final thing I wanted to ask you about with respect to legislation, the show up Act. They had the hearings trying to get the idea of telework back to the levels that were pre-pandemic. I noticed that the sponsors of that didn't say, get rid of telework, let's start over again, but at least to the pre-pandemic levels. But even that one doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Right. Even though it's uh, you know moving forward in the House, uh, Republicans have made it very clear they want to get uh, federal workers back into the office. They want to get them back into their agencies. Um, but also, there was a back and forth during this argument related to uh, the whole issue of the Show Up Act, which is sponsored by uh, James Comer, who, of course, is now the uh, House Oversight Committee chair. And some of the Democrats were pushing back and saying, well, if you go back to 2019 levels, which is what Republicans essentially were saying in this legislation, that 
Democrats argue that it would be taking the federal government backwards. People like Virginia Congressman Jerry Connolly and others who have pushed really hard for telework say that, you know, well, if you just go back and try to put the genie back in the bottle, um, we're actually going to move the other direction and we're not going to have enough people that can work back and forth. And so uh, a lot of people um, kind of in the middle here are, are looking again for some kind of hybrid where you don't necessarily say everybody has to get back every single day of the week. But at the same time, you don't have people that are staying home and not getting into the office. And that's part of the re- argument that many Republicans have made is they think that people have been staying home just by choice and they don't want to come in at all. And, of course, then there's the whole other argument about how many people are actually going to get into these federal agencies here in the Washington area and what that's going to meet for the real estate market. Uh, there's a whole, as you know, a whole number of complicated issues related to this. Yeah, it really is a multifaceted issue. And there's that little pressure from the city of Washington, the Washington, D.C. government, which whose thinkers I think are more aligned with the way Democrats in Congress think in general. And so they would like, like Muriel Bowser has said, the mayor of D.C., either come back or consolidate and release the space you're leasing. Right, exactly. And so that's why there's so much talk in D.C. now about whether or not some of these office buildings are going to be converted into condos or apartments, because if it's just going to be a big empty building down near K Street or somewhere like that, uh, D.C. is going to lose out on a lot of tax revenue. So uh, there's, again, a lot of big issues here. And what about some of the big nominees? I'm thinking of the IRS commissioner, Danny Werfel. When is that going to finally get hearings. Yeah, that will come up before the Senate Finance Committee this week, and he is going to get a lot of questions, no doubt, about the $80 billion plus that's going to the IRS under the Inflation Reduction Act. As you know, many Republicans very uh, concerned about the fact that billions of dollars are going to go to the IRS. And in fact, the House basically symbolically, as their first piece of legislation, passed a bill that said that that money should be taken away. Uh, they have made the argument that this is all going toward IRS agents, and many of them armed, but of course that is not really correct. But it is going to hire a lot more IRS officials and IT people, and so I'm sure uh, Werfel is really going to get a lot of questions about that because there's a lot of money at stake for sure. Yes, he's got a very fine eye of the needle to thread during those hearings. Absolutely. And what about Gigi Sohn for the Federal Communications Commission? She's going to come up for consideration again before the Commerce Committee, uh, the Senate Commerce Committee this week, and and uh, her nomination actually has really been stuck. Her It never went forward. A lot of Republicans have been charging that she's been critical of conservatives over the years and that she said some things that, that they have a lot of issues with. So she will certainly be under the proverbial Senate hot seat coming up this week. And just a final question, the State of the Union. I don't know why people get so excited about that. It's just every year it's one politician <laughs> or another. I, I, the president's, those are campaign speeches. I don't care who it is. But... There wasn't a whole lot that the federal workforce or the federal bureaucracy could take away from it, aside from the ongoing battle over Social Security that is being conducted publicly by the president and some of his opponents in the Senate. Any ripples left from it? Well, I do think that's a pretty significant ripple because, uh, as you note, a lot of times the speech gets done and it's a laundry list of things that are never really going to happen. But in this case, I think it's been really interesting to see the dynamic that the president – 
the White House is feeling pretty good about how he handled the State of the Union, and, and they feel like that the Republicans have been boxed in a little bit and, and basically saying, no, we can't and won't cut into Medicare and we won't touch Social Security. And then there's even an internal battle within the Republicans. Uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and Rick Scott of Florida, who's actually the one who's floated the idea of sunsetting the uh, Social Security and Medicare and basically having to reauthorize them every five years. There, That's caused uh, political fireworks within the GOP. So in some respects, even though State of the Union, you can kind of go meh when it happens. Uh, in this case, I think there's a lot of pushing back and forth now because we're going to be, of course, moving toward the debt ceiling battle. And so it's kind of interesting to see how this first stage of that fight is taking place. Well, maybe the debate would get better if they upgraded from Ripple even to Gallo. <laughs> That's right. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. As always, thanks so much. You bet. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Give the Federal Drive a yay vote. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The State Department is using open source data and mapping software to track instances of war crimes in Ukraine. The Conflict Observatory is a federal foreign assistance program run out of the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with the team lead for that program, Susan Wolfenbarger. The idea behind the program and really part of the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization's mission is to kind of look ahead, you know, and anticipate conflict and crisis situations that might be kind of on the horizon and to think about how the U.S. government could respond if those things happen. So, you know, not everything that we think might potentially happen actually comes to pass, but if it does, we're ready to respond more rapidly than if we wait for the events to happen. How, how big is the team at the Conflict Observatory? The Conflict Observatory team is absolutely phenomenal. There's so many different organizations that are part of it. We have the Yale School of Public Health's Humanitarian Research Lab, the Smithsonian Cultural Rescue Initiative, we have Planetscape AI, we have Quiet Professionals, we have Esri. We're also working with the University of Maryland and the Virginia Natural History Museum's Cultural Heritage Monitoring Lab, and we're adding new partners uh, in the near future. So we have almost 70 folks that are subject matter and technical experts that are working as part of this program to lead it forward. Got it. And I mean, it obviously has this sort of focus on what's going on in Ukraine with Russia's invasion. Can you explain how you're tracking potential war crimes? I mean, not just war crimes, damaged buildings, potential damage to cultural heritage sites, looting, mass graves, crop infrastructure. There's a lot of different things that you're looking at. Can you just kind of explain how you're pulling all that together? So the key aspect, I think, of doing this uh, documentation, the first is that all of the implementers that are doing the research as part of the Conflict Observatory are following international protocols for evidence collection. So there are some different things like the Berkeley Protocol for Digital Open Source Investigations that lays out kind of the framework for how you have to do the analysis so that it can be admissible in court. And so all the implementation teams, as they are pulling on these different uh, geospatial data feeds, so we have a lot of commercial satellite imagery, optical, uh, both high and low resolution. We're using some synthetic aperture radar. We're using some thermal detections from NASA satellites. So we've got this whole suite of fully remote 
technologies. That's one of the main data feeds that we're using to do this documentation. Obviously, you know, we've all seen satellite imagery of destroyed buildings and and museums and and cultural sites and all these things. But then another part of this is called digital open source investigations. So this is going into social media and, you know, looking at blogs and telegram feeds and all of that and finding, you know, statements by officials, finding photos and geolocating those because there's different techniques you can use to actually figure out where a photo was taken based on the visual clues in it. The same thing with video. And so another aspect of what the teams are doing in their documentation is going out and finding all of those corroborating pieces of information that sit alongside the geospatial data that we're getting from from satellites and other sources. Wow. And this seems like such a new way of tracking a conflict. Would this have been possible even five years ago? I mean, how has this sort of playbook come together? Yeah, I think the field has really moved leaps and bounds ahead in the past few years. Uh, there's more data feeds that are coming online all the time. I used to do this in a, in a previous work before my time at the State Department, and I would remember trying to get one after image of a location. And, you know, I could order a satellite image, and it might be a couple of weeks before I got it. And now the teams can get images every single day. And so that really helps so much when you're trying to pinpoint you know, if there's an investigation, you need to know what day that was instead of saying, well, it was destroyed sometime in this three-week period. You can say it was intact on this day and the next day it was destroyed. So this availability and speed of the data is really, I think, revolutionizing the digital investigation area. You can you can just do everything so much more quickly than you could before. And because of the volume of the data, so like the daily satellite imagery, you can start doing these things with with AI and machine learning and start automating some of these processes so you don't have individual people that are zooming in down to the level of a building and looking to see if each one is damaged. You can actually automate that process, and so you're speeding up the tempo and the, the availability to actually keep up with the number of events that are happening. I wanted to ask about AI and machine learning. I mean, to what extent does that feature in your work? What are its uses? What are its limitations uh, in this field? AI has been used a couple of times thus far by the, the conflict observatory implementers. So one of those is a company called Plantscape AI, and they're producing several kind of large-scale data sets for us. They're they're taking other data feeds and creating new data from it. And so one of those is the nearly daily uh, damage assessments that they're doing across eastern Ukraine. And they're running all this background processing every single day. They're finding all the imagery that's being collected. I mean, obviously you have issues with cloud cover and things. It's been winter in Ukraine, and so that does hamper things to an extent. But, you know, they're able to automate these things for us and have that information available for the other teams. So they're building these baselines of data that the other teams that are doing investigations have to draw on as well. What's the future of the conflict observatory beyond Ukraine? Has that conversation happened yet? Yeah, I I think this kind of investment in technologies and analytics is something that that we're looking at into the future, particularly in CSO as a bureau. I actually am running a new team that we've created that's focused specifically on 
looking out and seeing, you know, where else could we do similar programs to the conflict observatory in the future? You know, we don't really have an answer right now about that, but it's definitely something that we're exploring. Susan Wolfenbarger, team lead in the State Department's Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin.